0: Good morning and welcome again. Y'all get your coffee? Yeah? We good? So Chelsea, you'd never made a cup of coffee before, huh? No, me neither. Yeah, I still haven't. I don't know how to do it. And then there's other people like that is the thing they live for, right? Got to have the right beans, like all that stuff. All right, so so like I said, this morning we are continuing on with our new series titled Unashamed, and the text that we have been kind of beginning with is John 20, 21, where Jesus said, peace be with you, even as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so Jesus made it crystal clear that he was sending us out into the world on mission. And so for those of us here in this room that have said I'm following Jesus, like that is what he has called us to, a way of life that involves being teamed with him in reaching people. A way of life like that is who we are. So last week we looked at 1 Peter 3:15. And the verse says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And so, really important verse for us in this entire um, series. Last week, we camped on the first half of that verse that encourages us to tell our story and give the reasons for the hope that we have in Jesus. And then we moved into the second half of the verse that talked about how to engage with others, like our demeanor, our tone of voice, our posture of weakness. Like when we're talking with friends, truly being curious about the mystery that they are and getting to know them. And so listening... When we're in conversation with someone, to actually know them and to find out what is really going on. Like, not just having answers prepared, in fact, that's not it at all, but really listening. So, our posture is really important. We talked about that last week. So, also as part of this series, we are looking at individuals in Scripture um, that give some of the reasons for their faith, and how they lay out this as they're following Jesus. So this morning we're going to take a look, a brief look, at an interesting individual who followed Christ, and his name was Luke, and Scripture tells us that he was actually a doctor, okay? And so now it certainly wasn't modern medicine at that time, but you'd probably be surprised um, kind of how far along they were. But what's interesting about him is that, one, he was following Jesus, but we can tell by what he's written that he was an analytical, kind of ordered thinker. So um, by no means is he this emotionally driven hype guy, but he's much more measured and scientific, and he's a careful thinker. And so um, if we read the introduction to his gospel, which we're going to here in a minute, you can see that he kind of lays out his reasoning for chronicling the stories of Jesus. And he acknowledges that there's a lot of stuff out there at that time. There were letters about Jesus, there were stories about Jesus. He's m- maybe a-, a little OCD or something, but what he's saying is we need an orderly account that's organized. And he was going to take the time to actually like interview eyewitnesses himself, do the research, and share some of his own experience too. So he actually wrote two separate books uh, in Scripture. So we have the book of so we have the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. So it's kind of the stories of Jesus in this orderly account that he puts together. And then we have the book of Acts which was kind of the beginning of the early Jesus followers. So it's Luke 1 and Luke 2 is really the book of Acts. So let's read this introduction together. Luke 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So right there, his kind of the way he's wired emerges, and he's not just going to take anybody's word for it, but he is going to do some research, he's doing his own investigation before he's just going to accept it. So he's an analytical, um, maybe what some would call a critical thinker, which is encouraging for us those who who are wired this way, because Jesus obviously clearly got a hold of this man's life. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is that whether you're in the halls of Harvard or in the hills of West Virginia, it speaks to people's hearts. No matter the intelligence, um, the way we're wired, whether we're wired more emotionally or more critically and analytically, whatever, the gospel speaks to those things. And so I think it's really important for us as Jesus followers, to know that when it comes to this, I think sometimes the perception out there is if you're a Jesus follower, you're just not really thinking deeply. You know, we're kind of simpletons, and that's not the case at all. I think it's really important for us to know that there are numerous men and women who are deep, critical thinkers that have multiple PhDs after their names that would not be following Jesus today if there wasn't some reasonable and compelling evidence for doing so. For example, our local example. So, Ian Cherry, a Ph.D. right there. Yep. And so I claim him as my friend. <laughs> and it has not, for some reason, it has not improved my IQ any, Ian. So, But I try to hang out with him as much as possible okay so it makes me feel smarter but god has wired us so differently how many would in the room here would say i think i'm one of these analytical types okay all right so a lot of hands yep ben i knew that hand would go up so so last week i talked a little bit about my story and i said i personally came to jesus because of i mean there were a number of reasons but the first one that really had a big influence on me deciding to follow Christ was the credibility of the Christians that I met when I first became a Christian. I mean, they lived the life, they were humble, they were patient. There was so much about their lives that I was really impressed with that then when they shared the message with me, it had credibility because of who they were and they had lived that out. the next thing in my story was beyond just their witness and their example was also just learning the gospel for the first time. When I realized, like, wait a minute, forgiveness is offered to me for free, and I didn't do anything, hey, what you doing? Oh, just ignore me. He said, just ignore me. Okay, I won't. I will. Yes, So, the fact that there was this message that was, I could be forgiven and I didn't do anything to deserve it, and it was offered to me freely, like that was an incredible thing. Growing up with thinking that to please God, we had to be sort of on this hamster wheel and it would take time and you never really knew where you stood. So to know for sure that I was forgiven, that was a life changer. However, after following Jesus for about 12 years, I had this really deep crisis of faith where I started to question everything. Everything. I remember thinking, like, is this just like fanciful thinking are these stories real is this fictitious legendary you know are they tales have i even concocted kind of this change in my life like did i just have a jolt of positivity and i'm living on that maybe we are the result of blind random chance i started to ponder those things and it was a crisis of faith that wasn't really just like a couple days, but it was a three-year period. And during that time, I, um, I studied, I devoured everything that I could. Any topic that came up in my mind, I think, I'm going to go down that rabbit trail And so I was studying astrophysics, microbiology, liberal theologians who were not Christians, who were picking apart the scriptures, and I was asking these really big questions like where do we come from, why are we here, what should we give ourselves to, and where are we going? And I've heard these kind of like summarized with these four words, and we've talked about this in in the college group, origin, meaning, purpose, and destiny. I asked about those things. And if you want to follow along with some of the notes that I have, it's in the church app. So origin, meaning, purpose, and destiny. Those were the big questions. And so I devoured atheistic thinking. And I was following that because initially it was kind of communicated that, oh, as Christians, like, you just aren't thinking. Like, this is just your silly sky god who, who is up there, your sky fairy, and that is simpleton thinking. So then I start, okay, well, let, let's read what the atheists have to say. And what happened was, is with each question, I was led to further questions and further questions. And the deeper I got, I found that, oh my gosh, they don't have answers either. Like, there are a lot of questions here. But there's just quandaries and there's no answers. So now, where am I, like, what am I left with? And so during this time, I'd been a Christian for 12 years. Honestly, like, during that three-year period, I felt like I kind of put my relationship with God on hold. It was kind of like, you over there in the corner and don't bother me. And I am going to determine whether you exist or not. And then if so, we will continue our relationship. And so it was, um, I think, a real dark time in my life because I also knew there was a lot at stake here. Like if I'm going to reject this, then it's going to mean a change in my life in a lot of ways. And the other thing is that there was just this like cognitive dissonance where I could not turn my brain off. And I, would, I was constantly thinking, and I remember just like being on a date with Allison, and I am just on another planet thinking about panspermia, you know, or just crazy stuff. Anybody heard of that theory? Panspermia. Okay, there's a few. We'll talk about it in a little bit. Um, anyway, so it was this deep, dark hole, um eventually i found myself emerging from that profoundly convinced that the biblical account of humanity and god and our relationship to him was the best explanation for the world that we find ourselves in so when we look at that verse first peter and we think about the reasons that we have for our faith, I sometimes put myself on the other side of that and know that I myself have asked all these questions too. And so you could say that I've kind of been well prepared to talk through and discuss these struggles with someone who struggles with it too because I've been there. And I think all of us at times, there are times when we struggle with doubt, and it's hard. Like, doubt, we need to be open with that and not afraid to talk about that. I mean, there are times when things happen in our lives where it makes us question everything. Okay, there is nothing that we think about that surprises God. Nothing. He can handle that. So, as I mentioned last week, when it comes to objections to Christianity, a lot of times they kind of fall under these categories, mostly. If God is loving, then why does this occur? It's really the question of pain and suffering. And then the further question is, if God allows that, He's not good and I don't like Him. And if I was God, I would not do things that way. That's what we think. It's a natural thought process. That's a big, big question. Why is there pain and suffering? Then it's, how can we trust that Scripture is true? Okay, so if there is a God, how do we know that Jesus was God? Is it reliable? And then we have those big cosmic questions, origin, meaning, purpose, destiny. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What should we do while we're here? Where are we going? Those are big things. So... Also during that time, I started to read and become familiar with Ravi Zacharias and John Polkinghorne, Hugh Ross, William Lane Craig, Michael Denton, um, Francis Collins, Alistair McGrath, like these were incredibly intelligent people who were Christians and were following Jesus. So the truth is there are great minds on both sides of the debate. And it always troubles me when someone says, oh, they're just not thinking. No. No. There are great minds on both sides of the debate. So recently, um, in Scientific American, I saw this article. I was really surprised that it was in there to begin with. But the winner of the 2019 uh, Templeton Prize for Physics, which... Like, I didn't realize. I thought you'd just get a medal or something. But it's valued at $1.5 million. So who knew that physics is the way to go to make bucks, huh? But anyway, so he won the Templeton Prize. And he says in this article about his take on physics and his accomplishments, he says that atheism is inconsistent with the scientific method. And then... <clears throat> Under the the headline was this byline. It says, In conversation, the 2019 Templeton Prize winner does not pull punches on the limits of science, the value of humility, and the irrationality of non-belief. It was amazing to see that in Scientific American. It's really cool that they put that in there. I mean they may have felt like, gosh, we have to. You know, this is the winner of the, the Templeton Prize in Physics. So, all that to say is that as Jesus followers, we don't need to be timid or scared of engaging with our friends on these important issues, but we can dig in with excitement and curiosity. And it's enjoyable. I mean, there's, one, there's not much more that I love than when I am sitting with a friend who doesn't know Christ and we are having deep conversation about the really important stuff. Man, it's awesome. Awesome. I, I have had like four-hour conversations that felt like 40 minutes because it was so fun talking and connecting on these really important things. So I've been watching, um, I've been following... This astrophysicist on Twitter. Her name's Sarah Salviander. And she gets challenged a lot as an astrophysicist, physicist, and as a Christian. And so this is one of the things she tweeted recently. What a word, tweeted. As a Christian, I've heard it all from non believers. You just believe what your parents told you. You must not know any science. Your faith hasn't been tested. Well, I was raised atheist. I have a PhD in science. I've lost a child and had cancer, and I'm still a believer. Really interesting to hear that. Most of her tweets are about black holes and quasars, ultraviolet rays, mathematical formulas, and scripture. It's really cool. And so, in her case, she is consistently in conversation with other analytical thinkers. And she does a really good job of sharing why the biblical worldview is most reasonable. So, back to my story and some of the reasons that I've been sustained in my faith. And I just want to dissect just one perspective that I considered for a while that I sort of mentioned, and that is that there is no God. So therefore, what we see around us in our human experience is just this gigantous, fortuitous accident event. There is no director, no author, and we are simply here due to random chance. Because without God, that is the alternative. So at first, I mean, there are some alluring pieces to that. Well, okay, there's no objective right or wrong. Aldous Huxley said one of the things we loved about this theory that God was gone and dead was that it meant sexual liberation for us. We can do whatever we want. There are no rules. It also means there's no higher purpose. There's no meaning aside from what you ascribe to yourself. Life is just what we make of it. Nothing more, nothing less. Ultimately, that chain of thought is despairing. There's times when that initially could maybe be freedom and eventually becomes really despairing. I love what Zacharias says, that ideas have consequences. When we lose our purpose, our meaning, and we're no more... the products of a colossal mistake, it changes us. So, the further I went with this reasoning and this thinking, um, the further I started to delve into kind of, well, then what are the alternative theories for creation and why we're here? And when we look at the beginning of the universe, according to the scientific types, it required hundreds of dials to be perfectly fine-tuned to the right spot for all the conditions necessary for us to be here. If one of those dials is turned ever so slightly, we don't exist. And then... Furthermore, you look at the organisms that we are and that are out there require, like, unbelievable amounts of information and direction. They'd have to have all the ability to build all the necessary parts to exist, and then all of those parts need to interact, communicate, and operate in unison. All, remember, with no intelligence, no director, no planning. That, for a critical thinker, for someone who's analytical like I am, seemed unreasonable. That started to defy logic. So, we're going to look at a slide here and talk a little bit about this. Here it is. Jim has a full head of hair. Okay. So, immediately, yes, immediately, we can come up with a couple conclusions. One, the person's blind, right? But initially, we come up to a conclusion. We automatically assume there is an intelligent author behind this because there's a code. There's letters that we recognize. The letters are then organized based on that form words that then form a sentence that we understand and connect with. So we would assume that there is an intelligent author behind just this really simple sentence. That's it. Now, if we go to human DNA, we have letters that are analogous to a mathematical language, a mathematically written language. So why, when we just assume right there that there's an intelligent author behind this, why would we look at DNA and assume there's just, there is no author? just happened. All those letters came together by chance to control cells, proteins, functions, while all growing together in unison. I mean, that takes a ton of faith to believe that. Cy Garte, a PhD in biochem, had this to say about us. Chemicals outside life have no function or purpose. Enzymes are biochemical proteins with functions. Syntheses make molecules. Oxidases oxidize molecules and so forth. Function implies a larger purpose. Biological molecules are purposeful. Life gives meaning to the universe. When all is said and done, we're left with this infinite regress and ultimately led back to a first cause. Like where did these elements come from to begin with and why do we have something rather than nothing? So it's quite the dilemma here. Like the fact that we are all here right now, that we can interact, see each other, communicate, love one another, it is miraculous. It is supernatural. Robert Jastrow had this to say in his book, God and the Astronomers, and remember, Jastrow is an agnostic. He is not a Christian. This is what he said, at this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And remember, this is someone who is not a Christian. He eventually got to the point where he realized there has to be an intelligent designer out there. Another quote from him, astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth." And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Interesting that there's that concession there. So let's look at Luke 2, 1 through 7. And this is the introduction of Luke's So what I wanted to highlight here with Luke is that there are details that he includes here surrounding Jesus' birth that I think, again, kind of communicate the way he was wired. He sets it in time, like making it verifiable to date because he says it's during the first census while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Then he gives further details on Jesus' lineage, And the location from Nazareth to Judea to Bethlehem, linking him to this town of David. So he's given the time frame and the location. Luke seems to be concerned about these kinds of details. And like he said, he's carefully invested, investigated everything. Hasn't just taken others' words for it but he wants to verify the claims that others have made about Jesus. And so facts, truth, accuracy, like that's all important. And then, like he said at the end of this section, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That was really his primary purpose for writing the gospel to establish certainty for them and to have this ordered account of everything Jesus had said and done. So when we circle back to 1 Peter 3, again, be prepared to give the reasons for your hope. That is our story. And furthermore, these types of reasons also could be part of our story. So when we look at mine, my personal story, there were a number of things that brought me to Jesus. And then there was this compelling re- relevance in the biblical account of the human experience coupled with this evidence pointing towards this Hebrew God that was out time, outside of time and space that just sustained my faith. When we look at creativity, language, art, music, Our consciousness, all of it comes from being made in His image. Important for us to remember as we continue in this series is that it is not our responsibility to be all-star answer person. It's not. It's important for us to share what God has done in our lives authentically to give the real reasons for why we have the hope that we have and to authentically follow after Him. And we may have some analytical reasons. We may have emotional reasons. All of it counts. And all of it our friends and family need to hear. The reason it's not our responsibility Or that we can just relax and enjoy sharing this is that God's Word tells us that He is working in other people's hearts. That it's not us being the answer people, it's us being real, engaging in a loving way, and He starts to work on people. So the Word tells us we aren't in this alone. God is working. John 6 says, nobody can come to the Son unless the Father draws them. So we have the Father drawing people and we just get to partner along with God as He draws people to His Son. So let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that Your Word is full of truth, That even for the most critical, analytical thinkers, Lord, we can go there with confidence and that you speak to us. You speak to however we are wired. Even that is a testimony to your truth, the fact that it can reach anybody. Anybody? So, God, we're thankful that there are great minds that are compelled to know that the evidence is so strong for you. And at the same time, there's some of us here that are that are struggling with doubt. We know that's real. Help us to be open with one another about that. There is no reason to be ashamed about that at all. I think of John the Baptist, God. You said, like, there was no one greater in the kingdom, and yet later he came to you and said, are you... A are you the one like even there he was kind of he was doubtful you didn't ask for christians followers that never doubted you just asked for ones that were willing to follow you and you knew that someone like peter would say i don't even know him you knew that we would turn our backs at times that we'd betray you and yet you still wait for us we're thankful for that. So God, we ask you to f- draw people to your son. Thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.